Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 7 through 11 today. We began this passage last week, and we will conclude it today. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 7. There the word of Christ says this. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, seeing through this scripture that not all of those who profess to be your children will enter into your heavenly rest, but it is only those, Lord, who hold fast their confidence and the boast of their hope firm until the end. Father, that is what we desire, what we want. Lord, we want to persevere. Lord, we want to endure through many tribulations and enter into the kingdom of Christ. And we pray that, Lord, today you would teach us of the necessity, Lord, of persevering in our faith, and that we might with sobriety, Lord, consider this wilderness generation who experienced, Lord, they saw so many tokens of your kindness and of your goodness to them. And yet, in spite of all of these testimonies, they continually went astray in their heart, and they did not know your ways. They provoked you over and over again by putting you to the test. Lord, may we not be like them, but rather, may our hearts and, Lord, may our lives prove, Lord, that we trust you, that, Lord, we are convinced of your goodness, Lord, of your presence, Lord, of your wisdom and providentially Lord, working all things in our life. And that, Lord, when we are tested by you, may we not put you to the test, but rather may we cling even closer to Christ. And so, through our perseverance, manifest, Lord, that we have a true heart, a sincere heart, Lord, one that is faithful to you. So, Father, teach us today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week where the apostle is urging Perseverance. That is what he's urging the church toward. He's emphasizing what he had said in verse 6, that we belong to God's house if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Right? It is not enough that we make a profession of faith. It is not enough that we begin the Christian life, but we must persevere through many tribulations until we enter into the kingdom of God. We must examine ourselves and make sure that none of us has an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. This is a very real and present danger for the professing Christian. He's not dealing in hypotheticals here, but this is an actual danger that we must be aware of and make sure that it is not true of us. And we will avoid this danger by hearing the voice of God with a tender heart, with a humble heart, with a heart that desires to know and obey the will of God. That is why he said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The apostle is quoting from Psalm 95. 
where the holy prophet some 900 years before was warning his own generation about the danger of hardening their hearts against the voice of the Lord. The danger is that if we harden our hearts, then we will provoke God to anger. And we don't want to be found as those who are opposing God. Do we want God as our sworn enemy? Of course not. Well, if we hear his voice, then what should we do? Do not harden your heart, but rather listen to him. Don't have a hard heart, but rather a soft, a tender heart to the word of the Lord. The preeminent example of a hard heart in the Bible is the wilderness generation, that generation that was brought out of Egypt through the ministry of Moses. And this is the example brought forward both by the prophet in Psalm 95 and now by the apostle in Hebrews chapter 3 as an example given to their audiences to warn them not to crave evil as that generation craved. And the same warning is before us today. We are to see what happened to them. See why it happened to them. Learn from their bad example so that we do not repeat the same sin that they committed and therefore suffer the same punishment that they endured. The wilderness generation is an example of a multitude of false converts superficial Christians. They swore loyalty to the Lord at Mount Sinai. They made loud boasts about their allegiance to God. They said that they would obey the Lord in all that he commanded. Yet their words were empty words. For no sooner did they swear to obey the Lord, they were found disobeying him, being disobedient, going astray. God tested them in the wilderness to manifest what was in their heart to prove whether or not their profession was true or whether or not it was false. And they manifested repeatedly over and over again by their hardening of heart that they possessed an evil, unbelieving heart. And therefore God swore in His wrath they would not enter into His rest. And that evil generation died. They perished in the wilderness as an example of eternal punishment. As an example to us of what will happen to us if we put God to the test, if we have a hard heart, if we make false professions of faith in Christ, if we repeat their sin, if we behave the way that they did, then we will suffer the same consequences. And that is why it says in Romans 15 verse 3, whatever was written in the former times was written for our instruction, that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It was written for our benefit, for our instruction, what happened to them, so that we don't repeat the same sin that they repeated. So we're going to pick up today in verse 9. We did the first couple of verses yesterday. We'll read verses 7 through 9, but we'll focus our teaching beginning in verse 9. Hebrews 3, 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, in, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me by trying me and saw my works for 40 years. Here, just by way of reminder, the apostle is in the middle of this quote from Psalm 95, a psalm that was written by a prophet, written by a man, but was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And that is why he introduces the quote by saying, as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit is the one who is speaking to us through the word of God. We are hearing the voice of the Lord. And this passage is all about this topic. What we should do when God speaks to us. We are hearing the voice of God today. 
So do not harden your heart against him as they did in the wilderness during their time of testing when they provoked God. God tested that generation. That is an authority that God exercises over his people. God tests his people in this present life. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 to 10. And this is something that we must learn. We cannot be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us, as though something strange were happening to us. This is the way God treats all of his children. He disciplines them for their instruction, for their benefit, and we should not be surprised when it happened, so that we falter and we fall away from the faith. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. All the commandments that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. There God tested them to see what was in their heart. God humbled them so that they might learn valuable truths, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This was to prepare them for their entrance into the promised land so that they would remember that it is God who provides for them, whether that be miraculous provision of bread coming down from heaven or whether that be the common provision that God provides by working, by farming, by planting a vineyard and eating the produce, whatever it is, man is the one that provides not only for our body but also for our souls. And God was teaching them this lesson by testing them in the wilderness. And this is what God does to his people. He tests his people. Their day of trial was in the wilderness where God would reveal what was in the hearts of the people. Now in this relationship between God and his people, God is the one who tests us. This is his right over us. This is the prerogative of God over his people. We do not have the right to put God to the test. We do not have the prerogative to try him in the way that he tries us. It is not a reciprocal action where God tests us a little and then we test him a little. He tries us and then we try him. In our relationship with God, there are certain things that God can do to us. Things that are peculiar to God that he does to us and we do not do to him. And then there are things that we do to God that he does not do to us. We pray to God. 
God never prays to us, right? He doesn't need us. We worship God. God does not worship us. God gives to us life, breath, and all things. We give to God nothing. We do not benefit or add one single thing to his life. He is the giver. We are the receiver. Well, when it comes to the issue of testing, as stated in this context, God tests us. We are not to put God to the test. He has the right to make us pass through the fire of testing in order to reveal what is in our hearts. But we do not have the right to put God to the test to scrutinize the ways of God. Now, of course, there is the testing of God that proceeds from faith, where we are living according to the promises of God and then seeing by our own experiences that what God has declared to be true is indeed true. What he has declared about himself is manifested in his actions and in the way that he treats us. This is as it says in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see, he says, that the Lord is good. God has declared that he is good, and then we learn by experience that what God has declared is indeed true. And in this way, God is proving himself to us. But this should be by faith, not by unbelief, not by doubting, not by scrutinizing and putting God to the test. The testing of God that flows from an evil, unbelieving heart. That is what they were doing in the wilderness. This testing doubts the goodness of God, does not believe in the promises of God, but despises God, distrusts God, even in the face of many evidences of God's goodness and of God's kindness. Isn't that what happened in the wilderness? God was causing the children of Israel to pass through a fiery trial. But this wasn't in the absence of many tokens of his love and of his goodness and kindness for them. God gave them many manifestations of his benefit and blessing to them. But as soon as they faced the first bit of adversity, the smallest sign of conflict, of hardship, what did they immediately do? They began to grumble against the Lord. They began to complain against the Lord. They turned on the prophet Moses. They doubted the goodness of God as if God. Could you imagine God performing all of the miracles that he did in Egypt to bring Israel out of Egypt only to take them to the wilderness and let them starve to death, only to take them there and let them all die and perish from dehydration? Would God do that? Would he do all of these things for them just to let them die out in the wilderness? Of course not. But what did they do? As soon as they faced the first bit of adversity, they immediately, they begin to cry out against God, complain against him, say, it would be better for us if we went back to Egypt. Why, Moses, did you do this to us? Why did you bring us here? Is God really among us? Exodus 15. Exodus 15. We see that this happened very quickly. Very quickly. And this action was a repeated action over and over and over again. Exodus 15, verse 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. 
So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. Therefore he made them a statue and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. This was a mere three days. After going through the Red Sea, after this miracle where God destroyed their enemies and they uh, safely passed through the Red Sea, three days later they are complaining, grumbling against Moses, what are we going to drink? What should they have done? They should have prayed to God. They should have prayed to God and asked him to provide for them. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Fifteen days later. Fifteen days. Now they face a little hunger. And what are they saying? Oh, it would have been better for us to be in Egypt. At least there we had food. It would be better for us to die there than to come out here and to starve to death because the Lord is not providing. Chapter 17. 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your staff, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is what he means in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 9. When the fathers tried me by testing me. They tried God by testing him. After all of his goodness displayed to them. After God gave to them time and time again manifestations of his love, of his kindness, of his favor. They had the promises, they knew the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had all of the signs and wonders that were seen in Egypt. They had experienced God's deliverance from their enemies. They were eating every day by a miracle of God. God providing bread from heaven. A daily reminder of God's provision for them, of God's love and favor of them. 
They had no reason to doubt God's goodness. Yet over and over and over again, they put God to the test, even wanting to put to death the prophet Moses. This was like their honeymoon with the Lord, right? Like a husband and wife when they go and they are together, just the two of them during that time, just them and the Lord in the wilderness. They did not have the Egyptians to oppress them. They did not have the Canaanites to tempt them to sin. They were there with God and with his prophet Moses. And yet they were repeatedly unfaithful to God. They could not blame anyone else for tempting them to sin. Where was the sin coming from? It was coming from their own heart. Like a wife who commits adultery on her honeymoon. Could you imagine how miserable that relationship is going to be? If already in this state of bliss, of marital bliss, right before the uh, rigors of daily marital life set in, already there is unfaithfulness. Well, this is what they were doing to the Lord. They weren't even in the land of Canaan. They didn't even have prosperity yet. They did not have these surrounding nations to tempt them to idolatry. And yet they are putting God to the test. And notice as well who it was. He calls them your fathers. Your fathers who tested God. Meaning the ancestors of the people addressed in Psalm 95 and the ancestors of those addressed in Hebrews chapter 3. Whether it's one or the other, they are your fathers. Now I point this out because men are apt to trust in their heritage. To have confidence that everything is swell between them and God because of their father or because of their fathers, because of their ancestors, because of their heritage. We know that this deception persisted among the Jews during the time of Christ. John the Baptist confronts the people in his own day because they are saying we have Abraham as our father. And he says, don't say that. Don't put your confidence in having Abraham as your father. Also, Jesus deals with the same issue in John 8, 39. There his opponents are saying, Abraham is our father. Now, in terms of their physical descent, was Abraham their father? Yes, they were the sons of Abraham. But who else is their father? Or rather, who else were their fathers? Well, according to Psalm 95, the wilderness generation was also their fathers. And that generation perished in their sin. Yes, Abraham is their father, but also the wilderness generation are their fathers. The one is a good example whose path we should follow. The other, a bad example whose path we should avoid. Does their heritage give them an advantage one way or another? No, it doesn't. Abraham, their father, was a believer who is in heaven. The wilderness generation, their fathers, were unbelievers who are in hell. And what is the point for us? We should learn from both examples. We should learn both from our father Abraham, but also from the fathers who perished in the wilderness, learn to make a distinction between good and evil. And what did the fathers do? Well, here he says, they tried God by testing him. Again, this testing of God was coming from unbelief, doubting the promises of God. There is an evil kind of a testing of God where one puts himself in some perilous situation and then expects God to perform a miracle in order to deliver him from that situation. 
That is what Satan tempted Jesus with in Matthew 4, 6-7, when he took him onto the pinnacle of the temple and said, Cast yourself off of the temple, and God will send his angels to come, lest you strike your foot upon the rock. Typically, should we jump off of buildings? No, we shouldn't jump off of buildings and then expect God to do a miracle in order to save our life. And a person who does that is putting God to the test. They're testing God in the way that they are living. And that's why Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, the testing of Hebrews chapter 3 is of a different nature, though both of them are coming from unbelief, from an evil, unbelieving heart. Here, the testing is a failure to trust in God. Though God had given so many manifestations of his love, both by way of the promises of God declared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these promises were clearly taught to them by the prophet Moses, and then these promises were confirmed repeatedly by extraordinary, miraculous displays of the love and power of God. Did they have any reason to doubt God's goodness? Any reason to doubt his care and provision of, over them? Yet what did they continually do? They put God to the test. They doubted his motives. They doubted his presence among them. They said, is the Lord among us? Is he among us or not? They doubted his goodness. God brought us out here to kill us is why he did these things. This is an evil heart who is suspicious a suspicious heart against God, when we should not be suspicious of God at all. God has proven himself to be faithful. Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is another psalm dedicated to these truths. Psalm 78. Verse 1 says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous work that he has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, and in whose spirit was not faithful to God. The sons of Ephraim were archers, equipped with bows. Yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand up like a heap. Then he led them with a cloud by day and all night with a light of fire. He split the rocks of the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they continued to sin against him. They rebelled against the Most High in the desert, and in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, 
Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and they did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above them and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he directed the south wind. When he rained meat upon them like dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas. Then he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled, and their desire he gave to them. Before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. And they did not believe in his wondrous works. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. There, they had sufficient evidence, ample proofs that God was for them, yet they persisted in unbelief whenever they faced the slightest trial or tribulation. And so what must we learn? We must learn that it is a very high and provoking sin to God. When we have confirmations to us of God's love and goodness, and then we doubt Him, we question Him, we murmur and complain against Him when we face some hardship or difficulty in life. This is a very provoking sin to God. It says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give to us all things? What more can God do? What more can God give to prove his love for his people? To show us how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. He gave his own son for who? For us. This is how God manifests his love for us. So why should we ever doubt his goodness, his kindness, his love for his people? And yet, what do we often do? We face some illness. We face some difficulty. Things in our life don't go as we had planned. And all of a sudden, we are doubting we are questioning, we are murmuring, complaining against God's providential care over us. As if God does not know how to care for his own children. As if God does not know how to love us, how to care for us, how to do what is best for us. Doubting his love, his wisdom, his goodness. Isn't that what they did in the wilderness? Repeatedly over and over again, they put God to the test for 40 years they did this. They saw his works for 40 years, yet they put God to the test. They literally ate by way of a miracle every single day, yet they did not trust God. So this wasn't some one-time offense, but was a practice of unbelief for 40 years. We cannot behave the way that they did, but rather we must trust the Lord. 
we must give ourselves to God and entrust our souls to him who judges justly. And God knows how to care for his own. This is what we should do and not be like them. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 10 says, Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. What was the result of their repeated provoking of God? He says, I was angry with that generation. Yes, here it says, God was angry with them. God has anger when men commit sins against him. And when God gets angry, he's not sinning. When God is angry, he cannot sin, but rather when he is aroused to anger, it is proceeding from his righteousness, from his holiness. God's anger is a righteous anger. It is a just anger. This in contrast to the sinful anger that often comes from men. Though it is true that a man can possess righteous anger that is not sinful, but this is very rare. Typically, when men become angry, it is misplaced. It is unjust. It is arising from some personal offense against them. And it is not covered by righteousness and self-control. That's why James says in James 1, 19 to 20, he says, this you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Man's anger does not achieve God's righteousness. For it is very rare that a man knows how to control his anger, knows how to moderate his anger by righteousness. And it is nearly impossible for a man to speak in anger and not commit some sin either against God or against his neighbor. And this is why Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow of anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. But whatever temptations, whatever vices arise in men because of anger, these do not apply to God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. God can possess anger, he can act in anger, he can speak in anger, and God will never commit sin. Because God's anger is always governed or ruled by his righteousness. And God's anger is always justified. And when God becomes angry, it is not a blight upon his character. This is not some flaw in God that we should be embarrassed of, that we should be ashamed of, that we should seek to hide in deep, dark corners. But rather, His anger is an expression of His holiness and of His glory. And His anger is essential to His glory, essential to His character and nature. If God were not angered by sin, then God would not be a righteous God. It says in Psalm 7:11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God is a righteous judge. And because God is a righteous judge, what does he have every day? Indignation. Anger against what? Against sin. Against sin. He hates sin and his anger is aroused against sin. God's righteous response to the sin of man is anger. And then a result of this anger is that God makes judgments and pronounces condemnation upon men. God speaks 
God makes declarations concerning men and what is true of them. Just as a judge, he hears the case, he weighs the evidence, and then he pronounces the verdict. He declares the criminal to be guilty based upon the evidence that is against him. So God makes such declarations against men. And God has access to all the evidence. It's impossible for God to err in his judgments. He has all the evidence he needs. He sees into the heart of man. We cannot see into men's hearts, but God is able to do so. And God has all of our ways before him. Even before a word is on our tongue, God already knows it. He knows and sees all of our ways. So when God becomes angry due to the sin of man, and when God makes a judgment based upon that anger regarding the character of that man, his judgment is always true, it is accurate, it is just. God's judgment always corresponds to reality. And what did God declare in his anger to be true of them? He says, they always go astray in their heart. Wasn't that the case? Isn't that what is manifested repeatedly from Exodus all the way through Numbers and up into Deuteronomy? That they always went astray in their heart. Their failings in the wilderness were not like the daily struggles of a true believer who is trying to live the Christian life, who wants to please God, who wants to do the will of God. But because of the weakness of the flesh, he sins against God. Right? When a true believer sins against God, is he pleased with his sin? Does he want to repeat it over and over again? No, of course not. He wants to overcome his sin. He wants victory over his sin, and he's not always going astray. He does go astray here and there, but not always in his heart. But they always went astray. They weren't fighting and struggling against sin. They're not trying to overcome their sin. They are those who are practicing their sin, practicing unbelief, practicing complaining against God, practicing putting God to the test, practicing murmuring and grumbling against the Lord. This was what was true of them. This is how they are characterized and how they are defined by God. They are grumblers and malcontents. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. First John 3, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are, are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Here, it becomes obvious, he says, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Well, 
If someone always goes astray in their heart, what does that prove of them? Who do they belong to spiritually? They belong to the devil. And here, when he says practicing sin and practicing righteousness, he can't mean that we never commit sin because of what he said in 1 John chapter 1. Because he said, if we say we have no sin, we are what? We're a liar and the truth is not in us. Right? But there's a difference between one who is struggling against sin, one who is trying to overcome sin. He wants to do what's pleasing to God, but he finds it to be a law that when he wants to do right, evil lies close at hand, as it says in Romans chapter 7. That is very different than those who continually go astray, who have no desire to overcome their sin. And that is what was true of them. They practiced habitual, unrepentant unbelief for 40 years. Though they made loud boast of their love and devotion to God, they always went astray from Him. And this going astray was taking place where? He says, in the heart. In their heart. That is where the problem resided. They had an evil, unbelieving heart that led them to go astray from the living God. It was in their heart, but then it manifested itself in their words and in their actions, in the way that they lived before God. They had that kind of heart. We have to have a heart that's able to serve the Lord, a circumcised heart. And who is the one that must do this? Only God can circumcise our hearts. Only God can give us this type of heart. They didn't possess that heart. God had not given them up to that day a circumcised heart, but rather they had an uncircumcised heart, and therefore they always went astray. And even though God is the only one that can change the heart, man still bears his responsibility for his own sin, and that is why God holds them responsible. Also notice in verse 10, it says that they did not know my ways. They always went astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. Now, when he says this, he doesn't mean that they were uninformed or that they were ignorant of God's ways. God's ways were clearly declared to them by Moses. And Moses did not leave anything out, but he told them everything that God expected. Exodus 24, verse 3. Exodus 24, 3 says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then he wrote them down for them. So the word was not in heaven, that they needed someone to go to heaven and bring it down. The word was not on the other side of the sea, that they needed someone to go to the other side of the sea and bring it to them but rather the word was near them. In their heart and in their mouth, that is the word of faith proclaimed to them by the prophet Moses. They were clearly taught by God through Moses. Yet God says, they did not know my ways. Meaning, they did not practice my ways. They did not believe or obey my word. It is not enough that we hear the word of God. It is not enough that we possess some knowledge of the ways of God. But we must know God's ways. We must have experiential knowledge of the will of God. And this is the knowledge that comes from believing and obeying the word of God. And that is what they lacked. They had the word declared to them. They had a very good teacher as well. 
Moses the prophet. They also had these words written on tablets of stone. But where was the word not written? It wasn't written on the tablet of the heart. It was not written on their heart. Therefore, they did not know God's ways. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 says the same. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Those who say, I know God, I know his ways. Oh yeah, I know the Lord, but they do not keep his commandments. He says they're liars. Isn't that the same as what's being taught back from the wilderness generation? They did not know my ways. They said that they knew God, but they did not truly know him. Then what is the result of this? Verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a result of their repeated provoking of the Lord. God was angry with them. God made just declarations concerning their sin. God found them guilty of sin against the Lord. And if we commit sin against God, there must be punishment. There must be the penalty for sin. And what is the wage of sin? What is the penalty of sin that it is owed and that it is due? Death. And that is the same as it says here, they shall not enter my rest. Not entering into God's rest is the same as going to hell. That is the second death that is in eternity in hell. The land of Canaan was an emblem to them. It was an illustration of God's eternal rest. Canaan was a type of heaven presented to them. An example of the true ultimate rest that will be enjoyed by all of God's people. That is the ultimate rest that we're talking about in this book. And that is the ultimate rest that God put before them. It was not rest merely in the land of Canaan, but it is the heavenly rest that we should strive for. He'll be dealing with this in chapter 4 as well. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 34. Notice here that this is what it means to enter into God's rest. Matthew 25, verse 34. It says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To enter into God's rest is to enter into His kingdom. To abide in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. According to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, and also we know from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, right? The new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, right? That is the rest that God has placed before us. That is the rest that we must strive to enter in. And if entering into God's rest is to be blessed by God, it is to enter into the kingdom prepared for us, then failure to enter that rest is the opposite 
And what is the only other option? It is eternal damnation. It is to be rejected from the kingdom of God, to, say, to hear God say, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire. This would be the same as Matthew 25, 41. Those on his right and those on his left. And there's no group in the middle, right? You're either on the right or you're either on the left. You either hear those words, enter into the kingdom prepared for you, or you hear these words, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. When God swore that the wilderness generation would not enter his rest, what happened to them visibly and physically? They all perished in the wilderness, and they did not cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land. This was a picture, a token, of what will be true of them on the day of judgment. And it is a picture of what will be true of all of those who harden their heart against the voice of God. What will they hear on the day of judgment? They will hear Christ say, depart from me, you accursed one, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angel. They will not enter my rest is the same as depart from me, you accursed ones. Their physical death in the wilderness, a sign of the ultimate spiritual death, the second death that they will undergo for all eternity in the lake of fire, and that all of those who harden their hearts against God will undergo in the lake of fire. Jude verses 5 to 7. Jude 5 to 7 makes this connection. And he speaks also of this wilderness generation and of others as well. Jude verses 5 to 7 says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. There, again, he is pointing out the obvious, that what happened to them visibly and physically on earth, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone fell from heaven and destroyed that city, they are exhibited, that is an example of those who undergo the punishment of eternal fire. And that is true of all of these examples. The wilderness generation, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to all of them on this earth in terms of the judgment of God is an example of the eternal judgment of God, the eternal fires of God. God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. Now, we have to ask, did God make good on his word? Did God keep his word? God made a solemn vow. God took an oath. Did God keep his word? Well, they took an oath as well. 
Didn't they swear to obey God when they said, all that the Lord says, we will do? Their words proved to be meaningless. They did not keep their word. They were not true to their promises. But what about God? Does God make idle threats? Does God swear and then not fulfill? Is God just a big talker in the things that he says and the threats that he says against men? Is God like a dog who has a big bark, but he has a very little bite? Because that's how most people vision God. God says these kinds of things, but he doesn't really mean it. Well, what about with him? Did God make an idle threat? Well, let's see. Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Verses 26 to 35. Numbers 14. Verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is after they refused to enter into the promised land. When the spies were sent and they came back and the ten spies gave the bad report and then the people wanted to kill Moses and go back to Egypt and then God, then that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Even though they had already put God to the test many different ways, that was the final one that brought the judgment that was irrevocable. Okay, 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with his evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness." According to the number of the days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be destroyed, and there they will die. Then flip over to chapter 26. God made his threat. God promised in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. Did God keep his word? 26.63 These are those who are numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Every single man, 20 years and older, who was numbered when they came out of Egypt, every single one of them was dead by the time that they come to the end of their wilderness wanderings and they are numbered again, except for who? Caleb and Joshua. Did God make good on his threat? Absolutely he did. 
They all perished in the wilderness down to the very last men. Not a single person was spared to whom God swore in his wrath that he would not enter his rest. And so we are reminded that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Numbers 23, 19. God always keeps his word. God cannot deny himself. Not one word of God will fall to the ground, but all of it will be accomplished. The threats of God's curses are just as sure, just as certain, just as fixed as his promises for blessing. And yet, what are men prone to think? Men are prone to think that God's promises for good And there are many promises in the Bible for God's blessing, for his grace and mercy, for his goodness and kindness to men. These are sure. These are certain. These are fixed. These are unalterable. But God's threats, they can be easily evaded. Right? God will not fulfill and follow through in one way or another. And this deceit has prevailed in the minds of men since the very beginning was not a part of Adam and Eve's failing and their falling into sin, a failure to take seriously God's threats of punishment. God told them that the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But they didn't believe it. They did not believe what God had declared to be true. Either God would not punish them as he said, or the punishment would not be as bad as God made it out to be. So you can transgress the command of God and everything will be all right because God's threats aren't really that threatening. Has God really said? The serpent said to them, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And so it goes on generation after generation after generation, falling under the same delusion as our first parents. Did God really say that sinners will die? and be cursed, and be cast into the lake of fire? He may have said such things, but surely there will be a way of escape. Surely God will not follow through in what he has said. It is okay to frighten men, right, with such thoughts of hell, but God does not intend to deal with men in such a manner. After all, he is the God of love, is what they tell us. What God threatens, they say he will not execute, Now, the promises of God for blessing, for peace and safety, these are sure. We can know for certain that they will come to pass. We can draw great comfort from these promises, but we need not fear the threats of God. This is what men believe and think. But where does this come from? Who taught them these things? Why are they showing partiality to God's promises? Viewing his promises in one way and his threats in another. When God swears for our good, it is fixed and certain. But when he swears for a man's destruction, it is uncertain and it may or may not come about. Is it not the same God who is swearing? Is it not the same God who is taking an oath on his lips? And what God says he will do. And what makes God's word sure and certain and fixed whether that be for a man's blessing or whether that be for a man's condemnation is the nature of God. It is the character of God. It is the one to whom the oath is given. The vows of men 
They're meaningless many times because men are fickle. Men change. They ebb and flow here and there. But not the vows of God. Because God is faithful to his word. And whatever God says, he will surely bring it about. God is the one who swore that they will not enter my rest. And God is not a man. He does not lie. He does not change his mind. Whatever he says, he does. Whatever he speaks, he makes good. Whether that be for a man's good or whether that mean be for a man's evil. Whether it be for blessing or for cursing. It will surely come about. And we see that it did come about with them. This swearing of God that they would not enter his rest, it came about, it was proven to be true, and that is not exclusive to that generation. It is not restricted only to them as if they were some peculiar people, a rotten batch of people, and it's only true of them. It is a fixed law. It is a part of God's eternal law. The oath of God that those who harden their hearts against him will not enter into God's rest. This law will abide forever and ever and ever. That is what the apostle is bringing up in our passage. 1,400 years after the wilderness generation. For us, 3,400 years. 900 years after Psalm 95. For us, 2,900 years. Telling his own readers... If you behave in the same way as the wilderness generation, then God will swear in his wrath that you will not enter into his rest. And the same abiding truth remains true for us today. Do we want to enter into God's rest? Do we want God's promises for our good and not for our destruction? Then what must we do? Today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your heart. Hear the voice of the Lord. Believe the voice of the Lord. Obey the voice of the Lord. Or as he said in verse 6, hold fast your confidence and the boast of your hope firm until the end. Cling to Christ. We have to cling to Christ for how long? To the very end. To the very end of our life. But if we forsake him, if we abandon him, If the going gets tough and we say, I'm not cut out for this, this isn't what I signed up for, and we walk away, then God will swear in his wrath that we will not enter into his rest. So we must persevere and endure. That's what he's urging us to do. Urging us to endure until the very end. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll end with this because... It's brought up again. The same thing brought up again. We've seen this. We see it in Numbers. We read it from Psalm 78 earlier. We read it from Psalm 95 last week. He's quoting it in Hebrews chapter 3. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's all over the place in the Bible. We need to pay attention to what God is saying to the voice of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud... And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness." 
Now these things happen as examples for us, that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to to endure it. There he says twice, these things happen to them as examples for us. And he clearly enumerates those things for us that we are to learn. No temptation has seized us except what is common to man. Whatever trial, whatever testing that God brings us through, are we able to endure it? According to verse 13, he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But we have to have humility. If we think that we stand, we better take heed lest we fall. He is urging us to hold fast to Christ, firm until the very end. And this is what we must do. We have made the profession of faith. Up to this point, we have continued in the things of God. So what do we need to keep doing? Keep holding fast to our profession and keep persisting and holding on to the things of God to the very end. And whatever obstacle or trial God puts in front of us, cling to Christ. Hold fast to Him, cry out to God, and endure. Endure through many tribulations until we enter into His heavenly rest. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to You today, Lord, having such a clear, Lord, such a clear example of a people Lord, who proved themselves, Lord, to be false. Lord, that they were stillborn children, false sons. Lord, they claimed to love you, to know you. They said that they would follow your ways and do all that you commanded. Yet, Lord, they always went astray in their heart, and they did not know your ways. When they heard your voice, they hardened their heart against you. And they put you to the test over and over and over again. And we see, Lord, that you were just. Lord, you were righteous to swear in your wrath that they would not enter your rest. Lord, you were righteous when you were provoked by them and when you were angered by their sin. They were in the wrong and you were in the right. And Lord, we see that your character, Lord, your nature is unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not change, and you do not lie, and you do not change your mind. And Lord, you still hate sin. Lord, you hate unbelief. You hate it when people make false professions. Lord, you hate it when those who claim to be your children doubt your goodness and your kindness. Lord, go astray in their heart and do not know your ways. And so, Lord, we pray that we would learn today from their bad example, 
that if we behave the way that they did, it will not go well with us. That just as you swore that they would not enter, so we will not enter either. If we do not hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And so, Father, we ask today that you would grant to us perseverance. Lord, we, we want to be those who prove themselves. Lord, that when you test us, it proves that our heart is sincere, that it is true. Lord, that we have a good heart that wants to obey you. Lord, we know that in one way or another, Lord, in many ways, we will stumble, we will fall, we will go astray here and there. But we don't want to go astray always in our heart. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. We want to, to know and to do your will. But Lord, we lack the strength. Lord, we don't have the ability on our own. But Lord, you, you have all the grace and mercy. Lord, all the strength that we need, the power that we need. Lord, in order to do your will, you have it all. And so we pray, Lord, that you give it to us. And that, Lord, you would so fill us with your spirit, Lord, as to cause us to walk in your ways. And that we would be true to you, Lord, to the very, very end. Lord, even if a very great persecution arises against us. Lord, as is possible, Lord, in our own, in our own land, in our own generation. Lord, we see that there are many elements of our society that are very hostile to you, Lord, to your word to the Christian faith. And so, Lord, we know that it is possible for there to be, Lord, evil men that might rise up against us and that might instigate some great persecution against your church. But, Lord, we know that no matter what we face, Lord, you will never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Lord, you know what your people can handle. Lord, you know our weaknesses. You know that we are dust. And Lord, you know how to uphold us during those times. And Father, we pray that you would do so. Lord, give to us what we need, and we pray that, Lord, we would cling to Christ, but more importantly, that Christ would hold us in his hand, and that you, Father, would hold us as well, and that you would keep us from falling away from the living God, that we would not go astray, and that we would not have an evil, unbelieving heart. So, Father, keep us in the faith and keep us always persevering, Lord, until we reach the eternal rest of God. That is what we long for more than anything else, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, to be with you always, Lord. That will be our rest. And until we reach that rest, Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful to you. So, Lord, continue to teach us and to build us up in our faith. And, Lord, use this fellowship, this assembly, Lord, to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.